Um, this morning, I, I'm going to begin by giving a little review of where we've been over the last four weeks, and then we're going to put all the puzzle together. So uh, we're in a study on the good and beautiful life, and it was launched with Pastor Randy. I'm not going to preach his message, but I am going to give you a few review sentences for the, last, the first three weeks that he set up for us. The very first concept that he gave us was that uh, was about the way to a ruined life. And basically the central idea was, I am the center of my own life, and I want to do life my way. The second of uh, the series was the way to the restored life. And that is, uh, was depicted when Christ was calling us to come away. I am the way to that new life, and it's really good news. Jesus is captivating in the uh, invitation is to a changed life and becoming a, uh, new in our way of thinking and new in our way of living. And then the third topic was the way to the empowered life. And basically that the Spirit is calling us into an empowered life where the change that appears to be impossible becomes possible with our life in Christ. Last week, Pastor Clara picked up from there, and she spoke on the issue of anger, which, if it was left unchecked, can result in murder. Having the same root, anger unchecked, masked with self-protective behaviors, will move through the cycle of nursing, cursing, rehearsing, and we learned a new one last week, bursting into anger unto another. A very dangerous topic if it isn't dealt with in Christ's love. So today Jesus is inviting us to live the sexually whole and transformed life. We begin by putting our topic in a context of our own social existence, a society filled with sexual chaos. Have you ever really wondered why we have not heard many sermons on lust or sexual desire from the pulpit of the traditional church? Could it be that we just feel too embarrassed to talk about such things in church? Haven't the issues of sex been taboo? Didn't the church lock that door? The traditional church narrative consists of relative silence. We have a don't ask, don't tell, don't talk about sex rule. Today, the doors of silence of the worldwide church are being broken down by the details of clergy and uh, pre-sexual abuses that permeate the news. Other stories tell of the ravages of sexual abuse by young football players by their trusted assistant coach. Rampant pornography, sexual exploitation, sex trafficking are issues residing in the shadows of our own backyards, and they're becoming major social issues of today. The body of believers live daily in the chaos of sexually broken society, which impacts every sector of our lives. Even our children are at risk of becoming victims to faulty narratives on sex and sexuality as they do life in mainstream society. With such stories flooding the news and life itself being lived in the trenches of a sexually broken society, 
Our values are under societal erosion. Our narratives are becoming askewed. These influences are undeniably impacting the church and we, her people. God's truth is the weapon of choice for spiritual warfare designed to thwart the powers of the enemy who has lied and deceived even God's elect in the arena of sexuality and sexual desires. We're called to be light bearers. But if those light bearers have failed to illuminate the way, we stand silent. Lies and deceptions have unfettered reign over all areas of sexuality. As the church has abrogated her calling on the issues of sexual desires, the enemy has diverted and perverted them, resulting in God's perfect and precious gift of sexual intimacy, losing its meaning, its beauty, and its place in the kingdom of God. Today, we invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate Jesus' narrative and his truth about sexuality, sexual desires, and keys to freedom from sexual addictions. We will look to the word to establish the plumb line to guide and empower us to walk sexually whole and pure lives. When God directed me to teach this topic, I said, Lord, why me? Why do you want me to speak on a topic that causes people to blush? And he lovingly responded, too much, too much, too much is given, much is required. So I stand here with you. We are both on the same side. Lord, we invite you into this place, into our hearts and into this message a message of hope that might, you might break the yoke of the enemy's lies, addictions, and shame. Lord, where ashes exist or have existed in the lives of our people, we invite you to speak the truth, eradicate lies, break strongholds of addiction, set captives free, release your beauty for ashes where devastation once reigned. And Lord, when we depart today, May you establish your truth where lies once had dominion and lead us to bask in your presence. Meditate on your truth and your promises and be led by your Holy Spirit on the journey to freedom. So as we cover this message today, I would ask you to keep this one scripture in your heart. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Galatians 5.1 The false Christian narrative, all sexuality is bad. The concept dates back to the 4th and 5th centuries to the famous and influential writer, Augustine Hippo, who was of the opinion that all sexual desire was sinful and that sexual intercourse transmits original sin and is intrinsically sinful. Yet, Augustine admitted in his own book, Confessions, that he wrestled with lust all of his life. And he prays, make me chase, but not just yet. Monasteries maintained these principles and kept men and women who were dedicated to the Lord separate and chaste. The early church 
carried forth these ideas through the act of silence, which itself implied shame. Even today, many church members are shocked to hear of any sexual failures in church leadership. So the false worldly narrative, all sexual desire is good. A significant change happened in our culture in the 1960s with the free love movement. Unfortunately, this all began when I was a teenager. That tells you I'm approximately how old. (laughs) And it happened in the San Francisco Bay Area in the backyard where I lived. So do I have to um, testify to you that we are all touched one way or another with our societal failure in this area? A second and very strong influence regarding sexuality during this time was the publication of Playboy magazine by Hugh Hefner. Playboy reinforced and exploited the free love philosophy and published articles and teachings that suggested that sex is purely natural and that everyone should have as much as they want. The idea espoused by Playboy was based on the concept that if anyone wants something, they can have it. And the only limits in the area of sex was that it had to be consensual. At the time Playboy first hit the streets, it was considered pornography. I remember that clearly. In fact, Playboy was one of the keys which unlocked pornography's access to Main Street, moving it out of the back door's thumbs and into the front room of society. These two narratives have a measure of truth for each of them. Yes, it's true that sexual desire can lead some people to behaviors that they later regret. And it is behind extramarital affairs and promiscuity and Internet pornography. But it's wrong to blame the desire itself. You see, desire for food does not cause gluttony, anorexia, or bulimia. Nor does the desire for thirst cause alcoholism. I've been thirsty all my life, and I'm not an alcoholic. Today's sexual revolution has also some truth to it, in that sexual desire is good within limits, and it's not intrinsically uh, evil. Adam and Eve, after all, were commanded by God to be fruitful and to multiply. And God implicitly encouraged sexual intimacy between the members of his created couple. Not all sexual desire is good. Not all sexual desire is bad. We're going to look at Matthew 5, 27, 30 for our text today. Jesus knew that that sexuality is very important, that it has the power to destroy life or to enhance it. So in the Sermon of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke to the issue of lust. Unfortunately, the word for lust was not the, the accuracy that it needed to be, and it's been often misunderstood and misapplied, compounding its confusion. So let's look to Matthew 5:27:30 with Jesus speaking. He says, "You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you 
that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. Jesus recites the seventh commandment by saying you shall not commit adultery. And he expands the definition to fit lust. And in this text in in 29 and 30, the reference to hell is the Gehenna, the fiery version of hell that Clara spoke about last week. The Pharisees had limited the application of the seventh commandment to external acts of adultery. And with they didn't regard the evil thoughts or the perverse imagination, nor would lust in the heart or in the mind have been forbidden by law as the Pharisees interpreted it. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines adultery as conjugal infidelity. An adulterer was a man who had illicit intercourse with a woman that was married or a betrothed woman. And such a woman was the adulteress. Adultery was considered a great civil, uh, social wrong and a great sin. But Jesus knew that the Hebrew men in, in his time had legal access to sexual intimacy with women other than their wives. And as such, it was their practice to apply the truth or about adultery only to, to women. So when you saw the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery brought before Jesus, there was only the woman and there was not the man. This was the enactment of their philosophy. It was here that Jesus expanded the definition of adultery to encompass lust. And Jesus said that lust after a woman was adultery. So Jesus' focus is on the heart, on the inner righteousness of a man, and not merely the outer righteousness. Further, adultery, as Jesus has defined it, a person's sexual desire triumphs over their personal commitments. Adultery implies that fulfilling my desires is more important than fulfilling my commitments to myself, God, or others. This is illustrated in the story of King David and Bathsheba. King David saw Bathsheba bathing on the porch of her her, uh, rooftop. Uh, Bathsheba was a married man. She was married to Uriah. David sent for her. He laid with her, and they conceived a child. And Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was murdered by a commandment of David. Ultimately, the baby's son that was conceived died at birth or shortly after birth, just as Nathan had prophesied that the Lord would take his life. So David had lusted for Bathsheba, a married woman, but he was more interested in fulfilling his own desires than to fulfill his commitment to the Lord, to his wives, or to his people as king, leader, and protectorate. In fact, 
He who would have been the protector was actually the one that took the life of Uriah. So in Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, we see where Jesus states that the, when dealing with lust, a man should gouge out his right eye or cut off his right hand. And, uh, and that's it to avoid the, um, the eternal judgment of adultery, which would mean going to Gehenna. So the, Hebrew, the Hebrews had a custom to represent the affections of the mind by the members of their body. So an evil eye might denote evil passion. And in Second Peter 2.14, the evil eye actually means to de- and it denotes a very strong, adulterous passion. So when we, we see Matthew 5.29 and 30, Jesus' use of the right eye and the right hand pointed to the strength and the power and the reliance one has on the dominant eye or hand. As such, it points out how difficult it would be for the person to part with that physical right eye or hand. Jesus' point is, as strong as the passion may be, and how difficult it might be to part with it, it is better to let it go than to face the fiery hell. Jesus is advising the offender to execute judgment upon himself for the sin of adultery, for lusting after a woman. His advice, in essence, makes the argument that self-control from lusting, rather than having your body parts gouged out or cut off, is better in light of the judgment. In light of this passage, we can see why some cultures have taken some extreme measures to protect men from the sin of lusting. And they require their women to wear what we what are called burkas when they're in public. A burqa is a black outer cloak that goes from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet that completely covers the the woman, even her face. You may have seen these in a news reporting or in movies about the Middle East. So this covering is really a way to pre- protect the men from having to poke out their eye. These extreme measures of cutting off the right hand or plucking out the right eye or covering all the women in the world with burkas. <laughs> None of these would be necessary if we really understood the true meaning of the passage as it was uh, spoken. The original word for the word that was translated as lust is a word, a Greek word called epithumia. Epithumia means an intentional objectifying of another person for one's own gratification. In modern terms, we would say that the person that's being objectified, that that person is being used as a sex object. Simple. Epithumia does not refer to the very first look or the simple attraction. Rather, it, Im- it really implies looking at the second look, the leering. An example of the simple attraction is like a man that goes to the grocery store and their lovely cashier handles his order. He thinks to himself, oh, this is a very attractive young lady. He picks up his order. He leaves it and gives it no other thought. 
Very simple. One look. But epithumia is the second look. It's the leering. It's the leering at the is at the <clears throat> pardon me. It's the leering that's at the heart of the problem. The observer does not value the person, rather it lusts at body parts. Love looks at the eyes. Lust looks below the eyes. Love values the person. Lust degrades the other person. Easton's Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines lust as sinful longing, an inward sin which leads to the falling away from God. That's in Romans, that's the definition of Romans 121. But also lust, the origin of sin, has its place in the heart because it is the center of all moral forces and impulses and of spiritual activity. What I read in this definition tells me that epithumia is inherently dangerous. Let me say it again. Inherently dangerous. It's like a grenade in your hand without the pin. It's reasonable to conclude from, it is reasonable to conclude from epithumia that that this lust, this leering type lust, is not a desire to be played with. A biblical illustration of the power of epithumia can be seen in Samuel chapter two, verse or chapter thirteen, verses one through nineteen, in the story of Amnon and Tamar. The virgin daughter of David, King David, was Tamar. She was beautiful and highly favored by her father and her older brother Absalom. Her stepbrother Amnon secretly craved to have her. And because of this lust, he was wasting away. Through deception and feigning to be ill, Amnon convinced his father, King David, to send Tamar to his chambers where he, she could prepare a meal for him. David took the bait and he sent Tamar to Amnon. Amnon continued the deception by ordering his servants to leave the chambers. Once he was alone, he advanced on Tamar, and she pleaded with him, but he would not turn back. We pick up the story in Samuel 13, verses 14 and 15, and in 14 it says, However, Amnon would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with, it, with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon uh, said to her, Get up, get out of here, and locked the door behind her. This is the classic example of epithumia. Amnon used Tamar as a sex object for his own gratification. He didn't love her. He had no commitment to her. He did not have any personal relationship with her. His scheme was driven by raging sexual desire without any concern for for her nor for the consequences of her actions. Thank you, David.
epithumia, and pornography. One could rationalize that pornography is really only a photographic image or that the image is on the Internet, and so therefore looking at it is not personal. But Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed that adultery in his heart. Pornographic images are images of a woman. Well, in some instances of a woman, some instances of a man. Further, when a pornographic image is created, the person who is photographed is being objectified at the time of the photo shoot itself. Then later, when the image is looked upon lustfully, we also have a point of uh, sin. There are several concerns for Christians regarding pornography. The first being the degradation of the person who's being objectified. The second is the inappropriate conduct between the observer looking onto, because the observer is looking lustfully for self-gratification. And third, where the observer is married, adultery would occur. There's also the negative impact on the observer. The observer repetitively feeds on behaviors contrary for which they were designed and created. They're finding self-gratification in unapproved and unhealthy, lusting behaviors that leads to addictions. This, in turn, demands more and greater stimulation. There's the illustration of Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, in his death row interview with Dr. James Dobson in 1989, reported that he began by looking at Playboy magazine. This escalated and ultimately created a demand for more. He needed more to fill his raging sexual desires. He added rape, then brutality, and then murder. The cycle resulted in his serially murdering 30 victims between 1974 and 1978 across seven states. In his final interview, he described this process with, which began with pornography. He reported that he was a normal kid, raised with a normal family in an average neighborhood. However, he got addicted to Playboy magazines, which he found in the trash in the back of people's houses. Ted Bundy wanted, wanted to make a key warning, and he kept his conversation always on this statement. I was just a normal guy. I got hooked on pornography, and it ultimately drove me to rape, brutality, and savage murder. Bundy spoke in veiled references to a driving force which overtook him from time to time, effectively describing a person who is demon-possessed. Epithumia lust is inherently dangerous. Just look at Ted Bundy and his victims. Let's look to the garden where God's creation was present before epithumia was present. God created man and woman, and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. The man couldn't fulfill his purposes without the woman, nor could the woman fulfill her purposes without the man. God created sexual desire and attraction in them each for each other, 
And it was that sexual desire and attraction that brought them together to fulfill God's purposes. Their sexual intimacy brought pleasure to each of them, and it created its own bond of intimacy. Thus, they were created and bonded for their mutual benefit and pleasure, which was associated with their fulfillment of God's purposes and his plan. But pornography is not God's purpose, and it's not God's plan. The broken narrative of porn users and porn addicts. It's all about me. I want to live my life my way. The heart of the porn addict does not reflect a committed heart to the Lord, to the person behind the image being observed, nor to other commitments in the addict's life. In the isolation of self-gratification, the observer feeds an insatiable appetite for more. Like unchecked anger, pornography can come bursting out unto another in the form of murder. Epithumia and women. Jesus' focus at the time of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was on men who who believed that adultery was okay because for them, they had the right to have other sexual partners outside of marriage. But Jesus expanded the definition and he had applied the application of adultery to the mind and to the heart. But the language was limited to lustfully looking at women. However, our cultural circumstances dictate that the word woman not be limited to to one gender. By simply replacing the word woman to person and the word his to their results in a contextualized version of Jesus' teaching that fits our cultural reality. If leering lustfully at a woman as a sex object is sin, then leering lustfully at a man would also be inappropriate, as would leering lustfully at a person of the same sex, because the issue is the focus of leering lustfully on the object. In these circumstances and times, women have changed their sexual attitudes and exposures. Women have been targets of marketing campaigns and media playing to the women's new freedom to do, fe- to do the female version of what was previously preserved for men. Women's magazines, advertising, and media depict women participating in girls' nights out, male strip clubs, male prostitutes, picking up guys at the dance club, health club, and bars. Many other women are hooked on Internet pornography where it meets their emotional needs, but the shame keeps them silent yet craving for more. In addition, we have romance novels and chick flicks that tantalate women's emotional needs to feel loved, accepted, and valued. In the romance novels or movies, the reader is captivated and fantasizes that she is the female or the woman of the story, and she infers that the hero is expressing his love and affection to meet her needs. In effect, this process reads the, draws the reader or the observer into objectifying the persona of the hero. As such, epithumia 
encompasses objectifying not only a body, but a persona. The lust trap. Lust candidates are those who feel empty and have nowhere to put their strong desires. The condition arises in those not in close union with God or with his kingdom, which leaves a void in their soul. The person wants to feel something. They want to be caught up in something. A person that feels disconnected with God and his kingdom turns to one of the most thrilling alternative options available, epithemia lust. Epithemia allows the person to feel very strong with a feel-good sensation. However, just like Turkish delight in the lion witch in the wardrobe, it does not satisfy, and it leads us hungering for more. We'll do anything for more. So we look at muscle power and manpower, and we say, nope, that's the wrong way to go. Many people attempt to change their lives from the outside, outside of God, through their own willpower, with their own muscle power or manpower. I can do this. I'm strong. I can do anything that I set my mind on. My pride precedes my fall. How can you will yourself to stop the very behavior that you chose to do? The behavior that has become a habit and a major source of pleasure and excitement. Once you've fed it, strengthened it, reinforced it through repetitive behaviors and have been saturated in its rewards, tantalized and excited and hungry for more, how do you will to break the addiction using your weakened will? What will you use to replace the excitement, the tantalizing, the feeling, the desire for more that's established your irrational addiction? Insanity is simply defined as doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Yet, we try to will our lives to change out of the addiction that results in a repetitive cycle of self-help, failure, and hopelessness. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The fact is, we cannot change our heart by changing our outward behavior. This is also a point, the point that Jesus was making in his teaching about plucking out our strong right eye or plucking or cutting off our right hand. Because what happens is when we fight the will, we are losing an, a, a logical absurdity. Jesus is using a rhetorical advi- uh, a device that is referred to as reductio ad absurdum, meaning reducing the argument to its logical absurdity. Self-help over a sinful part of our being, our will, is not the answer. It's logically absurd. It is not the way in the kingdom of heaven. The healing journey begins 
with admitting that I have a problem and turning to God for help. And then inviting Jesus into our lives. It is here that the void of the heart is filled with God and his love. It is here that my testimony began. When God filled my heart, my life was different. And it stayed different. And it can stay different. Lust is a counterfeit. It's a thief. It competes directly for our spiritual hunger for God and his kingdom. Jesus looks to the heart. His focus is on cultivating a good heart in each person. A good heart is free from objecting, objectifying another for the sake of self-gratification. A good heart does not use manipulation or seduction to, for their own gratification. A good heart looks beyond the here and now, beyond feelings and desires, and opts to live life with eternity in focus. In the kingdom of heaven, we become new persons in Christ, and our new identity is one and dwelt with Christ. Such a person will develop an inner character that is not dominated by sexual desire and lust. And we are empowered by God's spirit. When we are properly connected to the kingdom of God, we find our void is filled. Jesus targets the heart of the matter, and he focuses on inner righteousness, becoming the new kind of person, a kingdom person. He invites his hearers to enter into the kingdom of God and become new people, born of the Spirit. He bids us to follow him, his word, his way, and be transformed by the renewing of our mind. No longer me doing my own thing. Bill Johnson, in the supernatural power of the transformed mind, a 40-day Devotional and uh, personal journal states, Repentance begins in the heart because choosing life is a heart choice to love God with all you are. A heart that seeks to love God is a heart that can become, that can come to know who he is, which brings a mind change that will enable you to see reality from his perspective. That choice in what enables you to cling to him. As the scripture says, an increased dependence on his presence can only result in his supernatural invasion into your circumstances. Invite the Holy Spirit to show you what he means to choose life today, to love God, to walk in his ways in all of your circumstances and relationships. If you are facing situations of unresolved conflict or seemingly impossibilities, ask him simply to show you his perspective. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Holy Spirit. 
What's the cure? The cure is living in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls his people to change their minds. He's wooing us out of that worldly perspective, which is focused on ourselves, doing and having things my way into a kingdom, into the kingdom of God. He offers freedom, forgiveness, and a new beginning. In the kingdom of God, the change begins with a heart, right where the lust and selfish desires are located, the seat of affections. The issue for every person boils down to which kingdom will I dedicate my heart to? Kingdom of darkness, to lust, self-gratification, satis- uh, insatiable desires and deception, or to the kingdom of God where we're free to choose life lived in the spirit with Jesus. Life lived in the spirit includes residing, abiding, making our dwelling place in the kingdom of God. It represents the center of our life, lived out in God's kingdom and in his abiding presence. In the kingdom of God, we have that new beginning, new values, new thinking, new opportunities to walk in the spirit. In the kingdom of God, gratitude is central. The changed life leads us to center our focus on what I do have. What God has given me. And on the life we do get to live. Without this perspective, we're constantly looking for something, some kind of other life. With the kingdom of God, it's no more muscle power beating my flesh into submission by a battle of wills. My will versus my will. Rather, we become spirit-empowered overcomers in Christ. We have a new beginning. The old is replaced with the new. And in the newness, a miracle in the making. Living in the kingdom is exciting. We never know how or when God is going to work in our lives. But God somehow seems to do something at the right time and in the right way. Something, sometimes even at the last moment in a theatrical style. I'd like to just take one more example from the word of God. In the story of the woman at the well, John 4, 9. Jesus was at the well in Samaria waiting for his disciples to return. And a Samaritan woman came and Spoke, he spoke to her and he told her of her, her life, her broken life and all of her circumstances. His words were prophetically revealing that she had been married and divorced six times and the man that she was living with was not her husband. Story of my sister. The, the Samaritan woman epitomized the disenfranchised people of the day. Hopeless, rejected, unloved, judged. Through the conversation with Jesus, heaven intervened with this sexually broken Samaritan woman. Jesus used this encounter as a divine intervention into her life, but also into the life of the community in which she lived. As she listened to his words, hope was kindled, resulting in her becoming a new creation in Christ. The kingdom of God 
broke into her life and she was changed. The evidence of her transformed life can be read in John 4.28. It's really summarized with this. The woman hurried back to her village, the very group of people who had used, abused, scorned, and rejected her. She told them her testimony and of her encounter with Jesus and how he revealed to her the details of her life. She invited them to come. She said, come, come see Jesus. He's the Messiah. Come, come with me. It was her in her countenance and her demeanor that spoke much louder than her words. Her countenance expressed new freedom as she became a living testimony of hope and a bearer of good news to the people who had cursed and condemned her. The Samaritan woman was a living witness of God's transforming power, extended and rejected to the, sorry, God's transforming power extended to the rejected and despised Samaritan people and even to an adulterous woman. The story of the Samaritan woman demonstrates the miracle of Jesus, what he wants us all to receive. That people would get it. That Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn. Rather, Jesus said in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of God's favor. Inside the kingdom, we get to know who we are and whose we are. God's not a respecter of people. If he transformed this woman, he can and he will do the same for you and me. He continues to radically transform lives in the kingdom of God through Christ. As we set our hearts on things above, we discover Something thrilling and exciting. The divine conspiracy. And everywhere we turn, God is at work. This provides us with the drama that we seek and the place that we need for channeling our energies. In The Good and Beautiful Life, in the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, Rob Bell states, If it's up to me, just me against lust, the odds are always against me. Whatever it is that has its hooks on you, you will never be free until you find something that you want more. Life is not about repressing your God-given life force. It's about channeling it, refocusing it, and turning it loose on something beautiful, the good and beautiful God. I believe that God wants us to stand as a community united, as one body, to strengthen the hands of those who are weak, sick, discouraged, broken, or sad. So if you stand with me, I'd just like to close in prayer. And at the close of prayer, I'd just invite our ministry team to come forward and be available to minister as God would lead us. Jesus, in your name... 
we proclaim we are one body, the body of Christ. And we stand united to take back the territory of sexual intimacy and purity which the enemy has perverted and stolen from our lives. In your name, we reclaim sexual wholeness for the sake of ourselves, our children, our families, our church, our community, our state, our nation, and our world. Lord, we release the power of your spirit to reorder and reprioritize our lives to establish and renew sexual purity and wholeness in our minds, our hearts, and our lives. We ask you to restore and revive the essence of being called holy, sacred, dedicated people of God's choosing to reflect the beauty of your holiness and draw people to your love. We pray that you empower and protect those who freely choose the way of purity for themselves and for those who choose to stand or become advocates for purity among their friends and relatives and classmates. Lord, let us shine in your world and empower us to take back the sweet innocence of the blush. Amen. Thank you. The altar is open. Look at me for a minute. That was one of the best sermons I've ever heard. That that material, you can go and sit down. Claire always tells me I shouldn't preach at the end after somebody else has preached. But um, Or my prayers. Actually, that was what she said. She said, you preach too much in your prayers. They are genuine to God. Anyway, to you. Um, thank you. It's awesome. Um, uh, yesterday was a wonderful day for those who were able to make it for a women and, and young women's uh, uh, workshop on purity. Um, next Saturday, uh, Bob's going to be facilitating one for men. And I just want to highlight that I would encourage any of you men to make that. Um, um, God's, God's at work among us. I, I just want to echo... Um, something and then make a comment, I hope. Um, I, I, I was drawn in my thinking as she was concluding um, and, and she spoke about uh, Jesus and the thief. John 10, uh, Jesus has a wonderful passage talking about himself as the good shepherd. Uh, a shepherd is one who cares for a flock. They have responsibility. And um, he speaks of... Um, hirelings in that passage. Someone who really doesn't care for the sheep but has some sort of charge or responsibility. And I think there's something there relative to those who are uh, impacted by demonic rulership. That the what what happens in demonic influence and and we use the term around here being demonized which which is based out of the dominozoic greek and it simply means to be bothered by a demon we would suggest that demon was jesus was demonized when he was tempted he stood before satan himself so dominozoi can be many many levels um Alice used the term demon-possessed. 
I, I, we would advocate that that's rare for Christians because Jesus is the heart, the soul. But that we can be bothered, that we can have influences of demonic activity, whether that be societally or whether that be in the aloneness of our quiet places or private places, but the, the, this passage, the, the hireling really doesn't care for the sheep. These, these um, bondages, these in, in strongholds, are not for our good. And this is what he says, uh, starting in uh, verse 7. So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me, all those other than his pursuit and his rulership, his lordship, All those are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved, will come in and go out and find pasture, the good life, the good and beautiful life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life, super abundant life, to the full. And I just, uh, I, my own testimony is that uh, is similar uh, to the front end of what's his name that you mentioned. I'm raised in a good, nice Christian home, uh, great parents, introduced to pornography as a teenager, got hooked uh, into that, um, did things that are bizarre to me to think about that. I broke into a home. I'm just going to be, I broke into a home to steal pornography. As a Christian kid who went to church, that's, I was on the same path that that man was. But God caught me, delivered me, and not until I was 25, four years into our marriage, did I find the freedom from that entanglement, that bondage, that stronghold in my life, and have remained free to this day because of the empowerment of Christ, not because of strong Randy human willpower. The pull of the internet, the availability of it, in contrast to what I had to do to go steal it from a house next door, is, is where we stand as a, as a people and as a, as a society. And here's, here's just what I want to say. Anybody who is being influenced in this, male, female, a little bit or a lot, you're being robbed from. And I'm going to give this simple illustration I know of people and men in this congregation. I don't know of you women. That's somebody else's job. Uh, I know of, of, of men in this, in this congregation who battle with this. We'll call it battle. It can be little or a lot. doesn't really matter. But I do know this. Those that do and lose express and serve Christ less. Not because they're not any worse than anybody else, but because they feel worse. They're being robbed of the opportunity to live the good and beautiful life because of this personal failure. This reoccurring thing. It can be a day apart, a week apart, a month apart, six months apart, a year apart. But those failures cut you off from being able to experience because shame, guilt, all that stuff just clings to us. We're being robbed. The thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Jesus came for you to experience the good and beautiful life, the abundant life, the freedom 
to live the life that he's called us all to. And so, guys, uh, next Sunday, Bob, I'll be with you, or Saturday. I don't know what else I'm doing, but I'm being here with you. I'm a partner in this. Because I don't need our church to be free. I need you men to be free. We have a lot of free women, not all. I'm sure there's numbers that really need some help in this area too. And some got some help yesterday. But men are, are a primary. The way we're built, created, mindsets, yada, yada. We can go all over this thing. Um, and, and less men lead in the church and express ministry in the church. And more men are bothered by this. And they don't lead and they don't step up because of these entanglements. And the disqualification that the thief, I, I, the thief, he knocks you down, kicks you in the side, and then says, what are you doing down there, you terrible person? Look what you just did. Right? He tempts us, and then he blames us. And we, we get them both. We get sucked into the temptation, and we get sucked into the blame. Okay. I, I can't. Um, anybody who would like prayer today, for any reason... You might come up here because you're just having, you know, some sore throat and you'd like somebody to pray for you or you had a difficult week. You can come too. That'll help everybody be able to come. Um, leaders, guys, women, come on up. We need this. I don't know what this is going to look like, but we just we just need to pray for one another. I need you guys and men that, that can, that are free, that even if you're not free, but you, you regularly are, most of the time you're free. <laughs> You're not disqualified. See, look at this. Okay, two men. Oh, there's another one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven women and three men. It's awesome. We are thrilled for our women leaders. We have a senior pastor, woman leader. We're cool with all that. But guys, we're missing a few of you on the team. And some of you have disqualified yourselves. So. The service is dismissed. I'm not going to pray and preach. Um, so the service is dismissed. If you would like prayer for anything, you're welcome to come on up. We will spread apart. You guys can spread down that way. And uh, might you have a wonderful kingdom-filled week this week. God bless you all.